Colbertson, a teaching assistant professor in the Department of English at UNC Chapel Hill, and this is my new podcast, A-Ideas. Or maybe I should just say A-I-Ideas. I thought it looked cool on the page, A-Ideas. I'll figure it out. This is a new thing. The premise of this show is that the people who work on AI are, and should be, influenced by ideas about what thinking and consciousness are from the humanities as well as fictional depictions of artificial intelligence from science fiction. And also that this should be a two-way street. Philosophers and artists have been coming up with ideas about how minds work since there have been minds, and with arguably no progress to show for it. At least, those of us who work on this stuff don't agree on whether we have made any progress. And now the engineers and computer scientists are actually making minds. So those of us who have taken sides on these questions of what a mind is and how minds work, we have a lot to learn from what these engineers are doing. So this show will be about me putting out these ideas, loosely speaking from, quote, the humanities and the arts that I think will be valuable for AI researchers. And also me learning about how AI works from AI researchers and sharing those ideas with people who are working on these questions in the humanities. So who am I? As I already mentioned, my name is Graham Colbertson, and I teach in the Department of English at UNC in Chapel Hill. My journey to studying AI has been uh, a long one and yet a short one, because from the very beginning, I was interested uh, in the theory of mind and in problems of change, progress, and evolution. That's what I ended up writing my dissertation on, Change, Progress, and Evolution in uh, Industrial Society in the United States. I've always been playing video games and reading science fiction sort of alongside my academic work. And then in the past decade or so, uh, after I finished my dissertation, I've been putting them together, mostly in teaching, not in research. So the big step for me in this journey was teaching a Star Trek class at the South Carolina Governor's School for Science and Math, sitting down with young people who very often wanted to be engineers and computer scientists and examining how Star Trek had opened up and asked so many of these questions, had served as the inspiration for Google, for example, that was just so fascinating and exciting for them and exciting for me. But my big leap forward for this was when I was teaching at the North Carolina School for Science and Math, and I joined briefly this thing called the Write-In Program. I got involved with the Write-In Program because they sent out a call to the Humanities Department of people who were willing to think about AI and computer science from a humanistic place. And I taught two classes for them that were just utterly inspirational. And those classes now exist, um, some of the materials for them exist online. I'll put a link into this. So if you want to use some of them, they're out there. One of them was about um, science fiction and AI and what we can learn about AI from science fiction. And one of them was about the ethics of AI and how we could apply ethical philosophy to people who are currently making AI. There's been a lot of talk recently about how STEM, that's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, is competing with the humanities, and the humanities uh, are, are losing, at least losing this financially. We're getting less funding, and to a certain degree that's true, but I see this less of a problem and more as an opportunity. I really think the questions that I am interested in in my 
you know, professional career as a student of 19th century ideas and the questions that I've interested in as, you know, a nerd, a geek, someone who liked science fiction and video games. And then the questions that mathematicians and computer scientists and engineers are interested in as they are studying the nature of the universe and how to use math to represent and create it. I think those questions are all linked. And I think there's relatively few people who are doing good work linking them. So I'm setting out to do that and I'm going to bring as many people on this show as I can who I think are creating these special linkages. Some of these, of course, will be writers who have been dead for thousands of years. But as much as possible, I will also have living, breathing scientists and philosophers on the show to talk about these ideas. Now, let's talk about philosophy and my background in philosophy. Am I a philosopher? Well, who knows? <laughs> I'm not ready to define what a philosopher is, and I never will be. I can tell you that my students tend to complain that no matter what course I'm teaching, I just make it into a class on philosophy. And I can also tell you that I have literally never taken a course in a philosophy department ever, not a single one. So what does this mean? This means that no one really knows what philosophy is, which I'm fine with. But I do want to tell you a little bit about a giant schism in philosophy that happened about a hundred years ago and I will try to make this show something that leaps over both sides of this schism. So there's an absolutely gross, ridiculous oversimplification. But the idea is analytic philosophy, sometimes also called Anglo-American philosophy, which is based on science, math, and logic. The, the best analytic philosophy, the clearest, the purest, is not even written in language. It's written in math and logic and is just perfect and pure. And then there's the older tradition of philosophy, of Western philosophy, I should say, sometimes called continental philosophy, meaning European philosophy. And that's the tradition of just people sitting around thinking about ideas and relating them to the world. So the analytic philosophers think the continental philosophers are just full of crap, their ideas are unclear, and they never end up saying anything. The continental philosophers think the analytic philosophers are completely pointless. They are not doing any actual work. They're basically mathematicians or they're doing logic, which is fine for math. But if you want to know, you know, the answer to the question, is life worth living? And what should I do with my life? Math is not going to help you. Now, again, this is a gross oversimplification. And yet I think there's a certain truth to it. Pretty much all of the professional philosophers whose ideas I'm going to bring in on this show deliberately tried to bridge this divide or avoid this divide. And here's one of them, Dan Dennett. He describes uh, the uh, super analytic philosophers as logic choppers and the super continental philosophers as deep purple sages. You can imagine them just doing drugs and saying things that make no sense, but that they think are very important. Here's Dennett. There is a time and a place in philosophy for rigorous arguments, with all the premises numbered and the inference rules named. But these do not often need to be paraded in public. We ask our graduate students to prove that they can do it in their dissertations, and some never outgrow the habit, unfortunately. And to be fair, the opposite sin of high-flown continental rhetoric, larded with literary ornament and intimations of profundity, does philosophy no favors either. 
If I had to choose, I'd take the hard-bitten analytic logic chopper over the deep purple sage every time. At least you can usually figure out what the logic chopper is talking about and what would count as being wrong. And uh, that's in Dennett's book, um, Intuition Pumps, if you want to find it. So, what do we need? We don't need hard-bitten logic choppers, and we don't need deep purple sages. We need weirdos who don't fit in either of these paradigms. All of these people, I'm about to give you a list of names, are people that are going to show up in this show. Well, their ideas are going to show up in this show. We've already met Dan Dennett, who leans towards the analytic. And then a few other philosophers who were trained in this analytic tradition, but either rejected it or tried to overcome it. That's Richard Rorty, Stanley Cavell, Ludwig Wittgenstein, and J.L. Austin. Rorty was trained in analytic philosophy and then turned quite decisively against it. It was a pretty big deal in the philosophy world when that happened. Cavell describes himself, Wittgenstein, and Austin as, quote, inheritors, hence no doubt betrayers, of a tradition of philosophy that definitively includes Frege, Russell, Carnap, and Quine. So you don't need to know those names except to say that those four the inventors of analytic philosophy. And Cavell is listing himself and his mentors as inheritors of analytic philosophy, but also betrayers of analytic philosophy. Rorty locates um, his inspiration for uh, his betrayal of analytic philosophy in the philosophers of American pragmatism. Cavell locates his 19th century forefathers as the American transcendentalists. So those are the philosophers I'll be starting with, those ones I just listed like Cavell and Rorty, and then the people like Emerson and William James that Cavell and Rorty are interested in. And all of them, in some way, will be straddling or contesting this divide between perfect logical truth and perfectly obscure wisdom. Or, to quote Dennett again, the middle ground, roughly halfway between poetry and mathematics, is where philosophers can make their best contributions. I believe, yielding genuine clarifications of deeply puzzling problems. This could be another version of this show, the roughly halfway between poetry and mathematics. But this means we don't need just poetic philosophers, but philosophical poets, which is to say science fiction writers. Probably the most famous of them is this guy, Isaac Asimov. There's nothing poetic about him. I think he's an okay science fiction writer, but as uh, I enjoy some of his novels, but as a producer of ideas, he is utterly useless. The king of this field. The most poetic mathematician or the most mathematical poet is Stanislaw Lim, uh, a science fiction writer whose work is still sort of confounding all of us. And then the greatest uh, franchise in the field, the pop culture version of Stanislaw Lim is, as I've already mentioned, Star Trek. So there's going to be lots of Stanislaw Lim. There's going to be lots of Star Trek. And then there's many, many more things we are going to encounter um, in authors, Mary Shelley, Ann Leckie, C.J. Cherry, Ian M. Banks. And, you know, besides Star Trek, obviously The Matrix features really high in these sort of discussions Blade Runner. We'll get to all this stuff. There's the plan. We're going to sit halfway between poetry and mathematics, between here and there, as Cavell would say, in this river of philosophy, and see if we can clarify the problems facing us as we go through this 
strange stage in which humanity starts trying to make new minds. I think it'll be fun. I'm going to conclude with a quote from Stanley Cavell. For Cavell, the great problem was skepticism. Can we know or trust or be guaranteed that the world exists outside of us? This is Descartes' question. I think, therefore, I am. But does anything outside of me exist? Descartes says yes, and frankly, I don't think anyone likes his answer these days. Cavell never actually says yes, that we should trust in the outside world. And he never says we should believe that it exists. In fact, he never even answers this question directly. Although pretty much everything he ever wrote is about uh, grasping or, or, or striving for a yes, the world exists to that question. And what matters to him about the world existing is clearly other minds and our connection to other minds through language. So if you know anything about what's going on in AI right now and natural language processing, and it seems that language is our key to creating other minds, I think Cavell's work is absolutely central. And here's this big quote from Cavell. He's talking about language and meaning and our connection to other minds. He means other human minds, other homo sapiens minds. But I'm confident this should apply to other people as well, whether those people be aliens, artificial intelligence, our primate ancestors, or something like dolphins. It's in the spirit of this quote that I would like to offer this podcast. We learn and teach words in certain contexts, and then we are expected and expect others to be able to project them into further contexts. Nothing ensures that this project will take place, just as nothing ensures that we will make and understand the same projections. That on the whole we do is a matter of our sharing routes of interest and feeling, modes of response, senses of humor and of significance and of fulfillment, of what is outrageous and of what is similar to what else, what a rebuke, what forgiveness, of when an utterance is an assertion, when an appeal, when an explanation, all the whirl of organism Wittgenstein calls forms of life. Human speech and activity, sanity and community, rest upon nothing more, but nothing less than this. It is a vision as simple as it is difficult, and as difficult as it is, and because it is, terrifying. So that's my vision for this podcast. Equal parts beautiful and terrifying. There's no promise that we will ever create other minds that will be people as we understand them, that will share our routes of interest and modes of response, our sense of humor, our sense of outrage, and our sense of forgiveness. But there was never any way of knowing that humans could depend on this world of organism to create sanity and community. And we know, in fact, humans have failed over and over again to create sanity and community, even as we have also succeeded. And if we want to create AI that's worth creating, if we want to create AI that's worth living with, we will have to create AI that hears the same hum of the world, the same hum of humanity, to paraphrase Cavell, that we do. And that's why I think those of us who study the humanities and those of us who are making new minds need each other so desperately. This is the end. 
the first episode of the A Ideas podcast. Please believe in other minds. Mm-hmm.